Well, we, this summer, we are studying uh, some psalms. We're studying 12 psalms of David, and David wrote a lot of psalms, and for most of his psalms, we have no knowledge of the historical situation that gave rise to the psalm, but for these 12 psalms, we know what was going on in David's life, that, you know, what was the situation that compelled the cry of his heart? And we're calling the series Outcry because we get to listen in as David cries out to the Lord from the midst of his uh, situation. And there's, there are a few things as important to us spiritually than knowing how to process life by faith, knowing how to go to God with our joys and our fears and our uh, struggles and our victories. And, and one of the reasons that we have the Psalms is because God knows that we need examples uh, and we need to listen in as other people of faith process life. And so sometimes we actually just let their words be uh, our voice, and we will just speak back the words of the Psalms and let them capture our heart cry in the midst of our situation. Today we are looking at Psalm 54. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 54. And we're going to start, start with the historical situation uh, that gave rise to the psalm. And that we find in the superscript. Uh, the superscript was added uh, a little bit later when the Psalms were compiled, but they're still uh, considered part of sacred scripture. Psalm 54, superscript. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. We, we don't know what mascal means. Nobody does. They're, they speculate, but we don't know. It's probably some kind of a musical term. Uh, this is a performance piece. David, uh, or at least the compilers of psalms, intend for this, to, this psalm to be performed as a, as a communal act of prayer and worship. A mascal of David when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? We read more about this particular situation in 1 Samuel chapter 23 verses 19 to 28. Let me just tell you the story. Uh, Saul is determined to get his hands on David so he can kill him. Saul knows that David has, uh, that God has said David will be the next king of Israel. And Saul doesn't like that. And Saul thinks, well, if I kill David, then God's purposes and plan can't come to pass. Of course, we can never fight God, right? And that's insanity, but the human pride sometimes makes us insane. And so Saul is hell-bent on capturing David so he can kill him and thwart the purposes of God. And so David is on the run, and he's hanging out in the Judean wilderness in a place called uh, Zith, where the Ziphites live. And it's not like an Alaskan wilderness. This is more like the Grand Canyon. It's barren. It's deserty, it's rocky. I wouldn't want to be living here for very long. Well, David has, uh, he's not alone. He has accumulated a band of merry men. Uh, he's, got, he's got some followers, other, uh, other outlaws, or people who are committed to David's cause. And David has, uh, and his men have been successful so far in eluding Saul. But the Ziphites see an opportunity to get in good with the king. And so they travel up to Gibeah, where Saul is, and they say, Saul, 
David is hanging out in our, uh, in our camp or our wilderness, and we can lead you to him. And Saul says, now, I know David is crafty, and so I want you to go do some more reconnaissance. And I want you to watch, you know, where David, make sure you really know where he is and where are his hangout spots and how does he move. And when you've done all that recon, come back to me and then I'll go down and, and capture him. And the Ziphites know that uh, Saul really wants David. They're helping out the king and, uh, and I'm sure he will reward them. So a little time passes and uh, the Ziphites do their recon. They come back to Saul. Now Saul is in in the Ziphite territory, uh, closing the noose, right? Uh, The noose is shrinking. And uh, David is running out of room to maneuver. And so we pick up the story in, in 1 Samuel 23, verse 26, we read, Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. So try to visualize that. They're not far apart, Saul and his army and David and his few men. uh, They're just, and it's not like a Chugach mountain. These are much smaller. We Alaskans probably wouldn't call them mountains. They're more like hills, right? And uh, Blueberry Hill. Saul's on one side of Blueberry Hill. David's on the other side. And David and his men are hurrying to get away. And then, so the noose is tight, right? And so it is this, it's crisis time for David. And, and, and crisis time is when you just don't have many more moves to make, if any at all. The outcome is out of your control, and if God doesn't come through uh, with a miracle, you're sunk. And it's this crisis that gives rise to Psalm 54. So turn there, if you would, to Psalm 54. Now, I doubt... I doubt David, while hurrying to get away from Saul, said, hold on, everybody, I got to compose a psalm really quickly. Might have, might have, but probably he wrote this psalm after, uh, after this was, had all happened, but it does capture what was really going on in, in David's heart and mind during this crisis, and thus we learn Uh, And it's intended to learn how to process this kind of a crisis by faith. Let me read the psalm. It's pretty short. Oh, God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh, God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Someone pointed out that In in this psalm, David both talks to God and talks to himself. There's prayer, and then there's self-talk. And man, when you're in a crisis, both of those things are important to processing by faith. It all starts with just, oh God, 
there's no preamble here. And, and I think it's because David doesn't have time for a preamble, right? He just, God help! And sometimes the crises in our lives are that hot. So I've got a number of questions that I think we should ask ourselves when in crisis to determine, are we processing it in faith? And the first question is this, is going to God my first impulse or a last resort? See, for David, it's his first impulse. David is a spiritual man who has a daily habit of talking to the Lord. And so when he finds himself in crisis, God save me is, is very natural. It's his, it's his first impulse. And David is asking for help from a friend. I had a, my best friend growing up, John Buller, his dad is a mechanical genius. And so when I was in high school, uh, his family was like a second family to me. I ate at their house a lot. And Laverne Buller, the dad, uh, I, I had no problem asking him, hey, would you help me on my truck, uh, my chainsaw, anything mechanical? And I had a need, and I would ask Mr. Buller to help, help me. Well, then I went off to college, and, I, and that was comfortable for me because I was at his house all the time, and we were good friends. But then I went off to college. I was gone for about 10 years and, and didn't have much contact with Mr. Buller. When I got back to Alaska, I still had mechanical needs, and I picked up the phone. But it was a little awkward. Hey, I haven't talked to you for 10 years, but guess what? My truck needs some help. And now when I call him, he usually goes, what do you need, Mike? (laughs) And so here's the thing. When you are in crisis, do you want to be asking help from a stranger or a friend? So for David... God is his friend. He's got a personal relationship with God. He talks to him every day. And so it's totally comfortable and natural for him to say, oh, God, save me. But when you're in the time of crisis, do you want to say, oh, God, I have not talked to you for about 10 years now. I haven't been reading my Bible, going to church or anything else, but I'm in the crisis. Will you help me? Now, God does, has answered the foxhole prayers. He will continue to answer foxhole prayers, but uh, it's the the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? We, we, when we're in a crisis, we want to we already have a friendship with God. Oh, God, save me by your name, by your name. And then in verse 6, he names God as the Lord, or uh, in Hebrew, Yahweh. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not saying, oh, Buddha, Help me, or Vishnu, or Baal, or uh, or Allah. He is talking to the Creator of the universe, the real God, who has revealed Himself more, most precisely uh, today as the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, if you want to be rescued by God in your time of crisis, make sure you're praying to the God of the Christians, the real God. Oh, God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. The word vindicate there is the word judge. Uh, And so David is saying, judge me. It's translated vindicate here because the assumption is David is saying, if you will hear my case, you'll see that I'm a victim. I am being unjustly attacked. In fact, in verse 3, he specifies, for strangers have risen against me. 
The word stranger there is uh, the word that's typically used to describe the uh, non-Israelite, the foreigner. And so, but the Ziphites were Israelites. So he, he seems to be underscoring either the fact that they're not relating to him with covenantal love, like you would expect from a fe- fellow Israelite, or the fact that I don't even know these guys, and they're trying to cut my throat. Ruthless men seek my life. Ruthless people are those who will use any and all means necessary to get their way, even if they are, those are evil ways. They do not set God before themselves. I love this imagery. So They don't set God before themselves. Now, as Christians, we talk about ourselves as followers of Christ. And the idea is that Jesus is on the move and we are following him, right? He's leading us. And so he's always in the crosshairs of our mind and heart. We have a God consciousness. And we're always evaluating life based on, you know, what, what does God think about this? What's his will? And these people don't set God before themselves. They don't have a God consciousness. They're not asking the question, you know, who does God want to be king of Israel? They're just trying to get in good with Saul because he has the power today. And so David says in verse 5, he will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness, put an end to them. David understands that justice for the righteous, often has the flip side of it is destruction for the wicked. And now verse 4. Many say that 4 is the central idea of this psalm. It actually occupies the central place in the psalm, three verses before it, three verses after it. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. First three verses David has been crying out to the Lord. He's been uh, praying. And now verse 4 is self-talk. David is reminding himself of what is truly true. So David's in a crisis. uh, and, And it doesn't look like there's any way to escape. Right? He could not conceive of a way to get out of this closing noose. And it would be easy to look at the circumstances and and say, I am lost. It's game over. And yet what is most real to David, even more real than what his eyes see in front of him, is this truth that God is his helper. The Lord, the upholder of my life. Now, the upholder of my life, the word there is like a prop. And it's, it's holding up. So David understands God is propping me up. And if God removes the prop, I fall down. The Bible says that in him we live and move and have our being. We exist at the pleasure of God. If he ever chooses to remove the prop, our life ends. So this winter, Sabrina lost both her mom and dad. Dad, we were prepared for. He had a cancer. But mom contracted uh, pneumonia and died very quickly. And for us, the timing didn't seem right. And yet, it was God's perfect timing. He is the upholder of life. And when he chooses to, to remove that and call us home, it's his perfect timing. And so David is saying, here's what David is saying. God is for me, 
and nobody can and can hurt me apart from God uh, allowing it to happen. Do you believe that God is for you? You see, that's his. That is his core belief. That is his core reality. God is for me. Nobody can do anything to me apart from God allowing it to happen. Therefore, I'm safe even in the midst of the crisis. Is that your core belief? Uh, Josh Adams said this week, I know I don't think our faith can grow unless we believe that God is good toward us. And that's true. If you don't believe that God is good toward, me, toward you, you're not going to put more and more of your life in his hands. Do you believe? Can you, like David, say, in the midst of the crisis, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. God is for me. Yesterday, I bumped into uh, a friend I used to go to church with, and he said, you know what? He was asking me about Clearwater Church. He said, you know, I haven't even been to church for oh, at least a year. And I was surprised. He said, yeah, my, my wife got cancer. I didn't know about that. She's on medications that she has to be on for quite a while, and it's, you know, it's physically difficult. But that didn't sound like the real reason, he said, and she's, she's angry with God right now. Man, when you're in a crisis like, you know, going through cancer, uh, having, having this confidence in God will give you the strength you need to walk through it, right? And so as a Christian, she has the great privilege of the presence of God with her in the midst of the crisis, with her in the midst of the pain. And, and how sad it is when Christians don't take advantage of that. James Tempe, Tempe, one of our own, uh, in, he bought a house in May. And he was telling, telling me that uh, the day before the house was to close, the bank calls him. Ah, I'm sorry, Mr. Tempty, but uh, we kind of miscalculated. You actually owe 2000 more dollars in order to close this house. And, and James said, he's like, ah, I'm totally leveraged already. I don't have $2,000 by tomorrow. And I don't even know anybody I can go to and borrow it from whom I can borrow it. And, and so he said, for the first time in the home buying process, I prayed. And I said, God, <laughs> what are we going to do? I have no idea how to come up with $2,000 by tomorrow. I don't even know anybody I can go borrow it from. Help! He said, I kid you not, under, under a minute after praying that prayer, less than one minute, the telephone rings, I pick it up. It's the president of Alaska Pacific University. He says, James, I've been meaning to call you. Uh, I want to buy one of your paintings, and I'll offer you $2,000. Isn't that awesome? And he said, here's what I heard in that. What I heard in that is, James, I love you. And, it, and he's tearing up as he's telling this story. He said, uh, in that provision, what God was saying to me is, I'm for you. I love you. You don't have to do life on your own. Do we believe that God is our helper? The Lord is the upholder of our lives. It makes all the difference in crisis time. Verse 6. With a free will offering, 
I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. David is here promising to do stuff that he cannot do if he doesn't get out of this with his life and his freedom. You can't go offering a free will offering if you're a prisoner or if you're dead. So he's promising to do something, uh, assuming he's going to uh, escape. What David is doing here is he's making future plans based on the promises of God. See, God had told David, you will be the next king of Israel. And for God to uh, make good on that promise meant that David was going to have to escape this, even with his life. Are we making future plans based on the promises of God? Now, God hasn't promised that you and I will become king of Israel. He hasn't promised that we'll get through the cancer. He hasn't promised that the marriage will be restored. He hasn't promised that our, ki- that our kids will uh, return to the Lord and start making wise choices. We can pray to that end, and often God answers those prayers. But there are a lot of promises God has made to us that we can um, bank our futures upon. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. I love this. David, in the midst of his crisis, is calling God good. Often it's in the midst of the crisis that we begin to question the goodness of God to us. Why am I going through this if God loves me? If God is for me? How can he be allowing this to happen? And here's David, just about to be captured, killed, possibly, probably, and he's saying, The Lord is good. Am I calling God good in the midst of my crisis? For he has delivered me, verse 7, from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. I think David is saying the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And God in the past has always delivered me. He's always given me triumph over my enemies, so why would I expect him to do anything different in the future? This is one of the great advantages of having been a Christian for a long time. The same kind of crises that were earthquakes when we were young Christians barely register on the Richter scale after we've walked with Christ for a while. Why? The crises aren't different, but we've we've learned God has delivered us so many times. Why would I expect anything different? He'll get me through this somehow. And we learn to trust him. Well, let's see how this story ends. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 23. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. So you couldn't get any closer to game over than this. Right? I mean... They're, they're, it's the final move in the game. It is, it, it's down to the, it's over. Game is over. It's all but over. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the rock of escape. Does anyone believe that this was coincidence? 
nor was it a deliverance that David could have concocted. I can't, I doubt David said, okay, God, here's what I need you to do. I want you to have the Philistines attack so that at just the right time so that their runner will get here to deliver a message at just the right time so that we can escape barely. That would be a great idea, right? He said, you know, what I see him saying is, take them out. <laughs> David's understanding of how I'll be delivered is, send the angel of the Lord, kill them all in their sleep, so I don't have to deal with these guys. God's deliverance is often uh, different from what we envision, but deliver us, he will. God owns the cattle on 10,000 hills. He directs the heart of the king. He's totally in control, and he will, so we can trust him. Even though he, he'll use uh, means that we might not foresee. In the conclusion, I want to say this. I want to ask this. Do you have a rock of escape in your life? They had, they, they called, the, this is the rock of escape. Uh, this is where God intervened at the last moment to rescue us. If you're a Christian, you do have a rock of escape. His name is Jesus Christ. The New Testament talks about Jesus as the rock. And there was a time when, well, all humans, we had no more moves to make. The wrath of God rested upon us because of our sin, and all have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all our good works are as filthy rags. There's nothing we could do. We had no more moves to make. Judgment was coming. And the punishment of sin is death, and God is just to to say, no more life and no more me in your life. But just when things seemed absolutely hopeless, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who took our sins upon himself, and he went and he died in our place upon the cross. And by his stripes, we are healed. And those who are willing to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ and make him Lord of their lives, they escape. They are delivered. And so we all have, if you're a Christian, you have a rock of escape. And if you're not a Christian, God has provided it. But will you step in by faith?